Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. The triennial division begins at 2652, and we're going to clip along uh, till we get to the interesting chunk. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these shall the land be apportioned as shares according to the listed names. With larger groups, increase the share. With smaller groups, reduce the share. Each is to be assigned its share according to its enrollment. The land, moreover, is to be apportioned by lot, and the allotment shall be made according to the listings of their ancestral tribes. Each portion shall be assigned by lot, whether for larger or smaller groups. This is the enrollment of the Levites by their clans. Of Gershon, the clan of the Gershonites, of Kohath, the clan of the Kohathites, of Merari, the clan of Merarites. These are the clan, clans of Levi. The clan of the Libnites, the clan of the Hebronites, the clan of the Malites, the clan of the Mushites, the clan of the Korahites. Okay, Korah forgot Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Jehovah, daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. She bore to Amram Aaron and Moses and their sister Miriam. To Aaron were born Nadav and Avihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. <coughs> Nadav and Avihu died when they offered alien fire before the Lord. Their enrollment of 23,000 comprised all males from a month up. They were not part of the regular enrollment of the Israelites since no share was assigned to them among the Israelites. Okay, so we're getting the apportion, the portioning of the land when they're going to cross over. And the instruction uh, is about right, size for more. Obviously, if you have more folks, you get more land. If you have less folks, you get less land. Then we get the enrollment of the Levim separately because... They're not going to get land, right? They don't get land. They get service. Uh, they will not be farming. They will be eating uh, and, and supported by uh, the farmers who they serve. You skipped over. You said it was obvious why they should get more people should get more land and fewer people should get less land. Mm-hmm. Was that Some people would not consider that obvious or even... They would say the powerful shall get more land and the weak shall get no... I mean, was this a... Was this something new or was this just obvious at that time? Um, it is quite nice. It is, it is <laughs> quite nice, right? That, that it, you know, that it was... Because you're going to be farming, it kind of depends on how many plots you have to break a territory into, right? But depending on how many families you have in that <laughs> tribe, in that... Right? How many clans you have in that tribe. So it's... Uh, it's uh, the prescribed method of apportioning the land seems to be based on two mutually exclusive principles, the lot and the need. Thus, although the apportionment is decided strictly on the basis of population as determined by the census, that decision ostensibly is to be made by lot. So then it's about, you know, are these two ways of apportioning the land reconcilable? So I can give you the excursus from here that <laughs> talks a lot about it. Okay. You know, I interpreted a lot differently, and I was confused. It means by chance. So first they were doing it according to the size of the tribe, and then I read lot, and 
So we'll see. So some people want to say that how much they'll get is dependent on size. Where they're going to be is by lot, right? You know, you, how how many acres would be by size? But then you don't get to pick. There'd, there'd be a lot of fighting over the best view, right? They'd be fighting over who wants to live in the highlands on the edge of the the rim of the cliff up there. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine? God forbid. All right. Um, yeah. 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 All right. So where are we? 63. You want to keep on reading? Yes. Okay. These are the persons enrolled by Moses and Eleazar, the priest who registered the Israelites on the steps of Moab at the Jordan near Jericho. Among these, um, among these, there was not one of those enrolled by Moses and Aaron, the priest, when they recorded the Israelites in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them survived except Caleb, son of Jephunah, and Joshua, son of Nun. The daughters of Zelophehad, of Manasite family, son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Mashir, son of Manasseh, son of Joseph, came forward. The names of the daughters were Milcha, Noah, Hogla, Milcha, uh, Malach, excuse me. Milcha. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcha, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses, Eliezer the priest, the chieftains, and the whole assembly at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not one of the faction, Korach's fashion, uh, faction, which banded together against the Lord, but died for his own sin, and he has left no sons. Let not our father's name be lost to his clan just because he had no son. Give us a holding among our father's kinsmen. Okay, go on. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, The plea of Zelophehad's daughters is just. You should give them a hereditary holding among their father's kinsmen, transfer their father's share to them. Further, speak to the Israelite people as follows. If a man dies without leaving his son, you shall transfer his property to his daughter. If he has no daughter, you shall assign his property to his brothers. If he has no brothers, you shall assign his property to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, you shall assign his property to his nearest relative in his own clan, and he shall inherit it. This shall be the law of procedure for the Israelites in accordance, in accordance with the Lord's command to Moses. Okay. Right? Yeah. Okay. We yeah. like it when that happens. Don't we? We like that. Still, yes. Still. Sorry. Yeah. He's using the old Bible. This is the, J, this is the, J, the, the traditional JPS translation. What does JPS mean? Jewish, Jewish Publication Society. The difference is that you said people here, it says men. men. And you said household. We, we have household. Household instead of... Uh, yeah, I understand. Clan. No, no, instead of man or... or That's your, man. You're, you're reading from the women's Torah, the yes. other translation. Yes. Yes. All right, so let's explain the difference. Yes, here we go. All right. So the first thing, we're going to look at this carefully, right? So the first thing that happens is, so we've just had this whole discussion of handing out the land to different tribes. So here come 
Vatikrovna Bnot Tzolovchad. So the daughters of Tzolovchad, what do they do? The very first thing they do, Vatikrovna. This is a very old form, plural, feminine form, that my Israeli friends are always very impressed that I know. Because um, like they don't even... <coughs> They don't even use this, um, or a lot of them don't even know it. So, but to Karovna, they came close, right? This is Karov. And the na, the nun and the hey at the end of that is the, is the plural feminine past tense for an action. Vati Krovna, who? Benot Sulofchad. So they came close. Who did? Benot Sulofchad. And now we're going to get their lineage. Right? They're Benot Solovchad, they're the daughters of Solovchad. Solovchad is Ben Chefer, Ben Gilad, Ben Machir, Ben Menashe, Lemishpechot Menashe, Ben Yosef. So his lineage, Solovchad's lineage, goes back to Menashe. And Menashe is the son of Joseph. So these are descendants of Joseph. Okay? And the, these are the names of his daughters. Machla, Noah, Chogla, Milka, and Tirza. So this is a Hebrew name, Noah. Nun, Ayin, Hey, it's a woman's name. So there are many Noah. He in Genesis is Noah. Nun, Chet is Noah. This is Noah. With an ayin, and so this is a this is a name known in Israel for women. So they get here, and people are like, "What? <laughs> Noah, your daughter-in-law, Noah?" And it's be- it's after the daughters of Solovchad. All right, so uh, so here here are their names, and Tirza is another one that you hear a lot, and Milka also. So these are these are their names. So they come close, vata'amodna lifne Moshe, and they stood before Moshe. Velifne Elazar Hakohen, and before Elazar the Kohen, Velifne Hanisiim, and in front of the princes. Vachol Haeda, and the whole community. Petach Ohel Moed, at the opening of the tent of meeting. Alright, so Already, our amazing, wonderful Aviva Zornberg is already talking about just these verbs. Vatikrovna, vata'amodna. She says they declare the significant acts of the sisters. Before they even open their mouths, and this is italicized, they come forward. So women who are coming before, they're coming forward to where? The tent of meeting. So this is already... They're coming forward to the place where only men are authorized to be, right? The functionaries, the leaders, right? They're coming to the sacred place that only men are recognized as being authorities in. Who are they standing before? Moses, Elazar the Kohen, and and the the, the princes, like the leaders, which are men, the Choha Eda, and according to Zorenberg, the Eda are the men. So that these women already are taking an act or are doing things that 
is already intimidating, is already, not intimidating, the opposite of that. It's just not the norm. That it's an intimidating thing to be in front of all of the, the leaders the and to come, I mean, for them to yeah. come forward and for them to stand there and, and confront them. It's, it's, it's chutzpahdik, it's brazen, it's courageous. It's modern. Thank you. Thank you. So she says, um, Zornberg says, the place in which the women stand is framed by male names. Right? So, right, we have, we have all this, why all these, like their names are in the middle, bookended by all this male stuff. Why? The place in which the women stand, uh, this structure, this, about being, about male names, gives us the sense of the world, the field in which the women speak. Five women, heirs to sons who become fathers, addressing an entirely male forum. So for her, this is already a big deal that they come forward and take a stand. <laughs> so they... What is, what is that? Yeah. Uh, it's a button. They asked me what it said. And it says, stand your ground. Mm-hmm. It is holy. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So what, what is their case? Clearly, they have something to say. They're bringing something forward. What do they say? Our father died in the wilderness. He was not one of the faction, Korach's faction, which banded together against God, but died for his own sin, and he left no sons. Let our father's name, let not our father's name be lost to his clan just because he had no son. Give us a holding among our father's kinsmen. So their father dies, they want to make it very clear that he was not involved in the Korach incident. Because then if he died with no sons, too bad, so sad. Right? You know, you, you, you rebelled. So he, he was not involved in that incident. He just died because he's one of the generation that had to die in the wilderness. Okay? So he's, he died for his own sin, meaning, you know, the, the reason they all perished presumably or maybe they thought every time someone dies you know with no son or whatever it's a, it's because he sinned whatever it is they're they're clear it is not about the korach incident <clears throat> and they go they argue if because he had no sons only five daughters if we don't inherit this land our father's name will be lost in the people of Israel right because they'll get married you know, and or, or the land will be given to someone else, not their father's clan. So they, in a sense, are, their argument is a patriarchal argument. Zornberg says, she quotes the Midrash, and the Midrash says that, well, the Midrash says a lot. Um, in the Talmud, these women appear in the Talmud, and the rabbis call them chachamot, wise women. And it calls them darshaniyot, darshanim. A darshan is someone who interprets the law. They're darshaniyot. How do we know this? That how are they chachamot? They knew the moment to approach. They waited, and they knew the moment was when Moses was expounding on the law about apportioning the land. 
So they waited, and they, they seized the moment. They knew what moment that was. And the next thing we're going to get is that Moshe goes to talk to God about it. Why? He doesn't know what to do. So they've stumped Moshe. <laughs> so they know the law enough to stump Moses, the lawgiver. And the other thing that they say is that they were, uh, they were willing to work together. That the five of them came together, and in the Midrash, each one of them utters one part of this statement. Right? Our father died in the wilderness. He was not one of the faction, Korach's faction, which banded together against God, but died for his own sin. No, died for his own... Let not our father's name be lost, right? Give us a holding among our kinsmen. So there are five statements within this one big statement that the Midrash says each one of them spoke. So they came together to make the decision to challenge the law, and they were equal as sisters, that each one of them spoke, and each one of them had an important piece of the argument, and they shared that speaking in front of Moses, which is supported, not that they, it's not supported that each of them said a sentence, but it does say, they said. So what, they all spoke at the same time? That seems a little silly, right? So why is the Midrash any sillier? That each one of them said a piece of it, right? Because it doesn't tell us who spoke. Is there any precedent for women arguing for for the rights in situation prior to prior to this? Well, it depends what we want to call arguing for rights. Do you, you know what I mean? Like we've we've had women challenge all along the accepted, assumed, like Rebecca working for Jacob to be mm-hmm. the patriarch, right? She they they They've overturned and disrupted and interfered with what was going to be the assumed orders for a different outcome. They haven't done that by challenging directly the justice of the patriarchal system. Property ownership is power. So should they? So they? They in this case are. Ch- now it's it's interesting. Like I've known this story forever, but it's like you know, the more you dig into these things, it's like. So what, what's what, for, tell me what's interesting that they, they what are they challenging? They're challenging the ownership of the land. Patriarchy. What are they challenging? The laws. The laws. They're challenging the law that favors males. That favors males. Who wrote the law? Who wrote the law? God. God. Y'all scared me for a minute there. <laughs> so who are they challenging? God. God. Oh, wow. But God's used to challenge. But aren't, aren't they also challenging the idea that women can't talk about the law? They're challenging the law. The law, period. It's unjust. You, you have forgotten something, God. Yeah. You forgot about women who are inheriting for their father who has no sons. You forgot that case. It's essentially what they're saying. Right? You, for, you forgot the possibility that our situation would be a real situation. And in that sense, they are, they are saying, in essence, 
God, you need to amend your Torah because you forgot something. So that's a little shocking <laughs> when, we, when we really think about it. And, and what's even more interesting to me is that all of the Midrashim affirm what they're doing. None of the Midrashim assume that they're being chutzpadik or that they are in any way disrespectful of God. The opposite. The Midrash says the women trusted the justice and fairness and the, the uh, mercy of God more than the men. But a less benevolent God could have said, no, I didn't forget, and you're out of it, dude. Correct. So they trusted. They trusted God. They trusted trusted that their case was just and that God would, you know, take care of it and would be just and would be compassionate. But also, God wrote that they challenged God because it's here. So if that's the way you're going to read it, and God was intentionally leaving it out so as to give these women a chance. So the Midrash asks the question, how come it just didn't, why didn't God just give the law correctly, fully, the first time? And the answer is exactly that. That the law is given, Torah is given for us to engage with it and to make it relevant to our time and to our situation and our job is to bring that forward. Our job is to vatikrovna, vata'amodna. They to come, to come forward, to come close, to come forward, to take a stand, and to say it is just. And it, it, w- it is a just thing according to our system if XYZPDQ. And that is why it is not given as the law because God wanted to give them credit and have their names listed, and it's told by narrative rather than by law. Right? It's a story. It's a little story put in here, rather than when you get to the land, says God, la 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 la, if a man dies with no sons, his daughters can inherit, la 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 la. Instead, we get a narrative, and these women standing and, and challenging, and it's done as a narrative by their merit. So God, what? Yes, God started the Me Too movement. God expects us to march. I have a question. When they um, they say, so and He really gave us the critical thinking skills. I mean, that's kind of what I'm hearing say is that I'm just going to say this base step now. I'm giving you, I'm giving you the critical thinking skills. Let's see what you do with that. You can figure this out. But the other thing is when He says. when they say that the land should be given to the daughters, and then if there are no sons, no daughters, it goes to the brother, and if there's no brother, why do we not go all the way and say it goes to the sister? Yeah, the sisters never in the male. Because it is not an overturning of the male patriarchal system. That is not what this is. What is their argument? So that our father's name will not be lost. They are not challenging the patriarchy. Right. Okay. They are challenging that because they're women, they shouldn't be able to hold their father's place in the line of succession. But it is to an agnate that it must go to a male 
relative. I think I remember later on they are not they are not allowed to marry outside the clan. So that is the condition on by which they can inherit is that they marry within the clan so that the land doesn't go to other clans because then their argument doesn't really make any sense, right? right. If we're going to inherit it and then marry out of the clan, how have you preserved your father's name in the clan, right? But the rabbis also say that, that they waited to marry men who were worthy of them, that they chose only men who would be tzaddikim, you know, would be like, um, righteous men. Is there any chance that the women would have been rejected? I mean, did someone counsel with them, do you think? Or is it, maybe you ought to talk to Moses privately before you go yeah. in front of the That's not the story we have. That's right. So the rabbis say that's why they are listed in the Torah, is that they had the courage to come forward, and, tr- and they trusted God completely. They trusted in God and in God's mercy and in God's justice. That they were they had no doubt. This is the rabbis writing about this. But that's what the rabbis, that's that's the direction our tradition went with this, is that they had nothing to fear because they fully trusted God's justice. Fully and completely. Margo, were you saying something? I was just gonna say, uh, are there are there any other cultures where women are in the Yes. 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 I'm reading but I'm reading this book by uh, Carolyn C. Um, the Tea Lady of Hummingbird Lane. It goes into the Chinese culture and the Aka people. And right now I'm reading about inheriting the land. And it's uh, part of, well, it's part of a lot of traditions, I would think. But I just wondered um, about women inheriting. Yes. So they actually, women in surrounding cultures to early Israel had it better. Early Israel was a very, very patriarchal inheritance system, even for the time. Um, So there's some discussion of that in the literature about uh, is it because they were agrarian when the other neighboring cultures were already urban? So early Israel was, was agrarian, and when you're in an agrarian society, then land is everything, and so it was just much more concentrated in the hands of men, the inheritance stuff, whereas in an urban setting, it's more movables and stuff like that that would have been what was inherited and women inherited more freely in those cultures. Except in Africa. In African cultures, many of them, women are the inheritors Right. Are, right. So, the right. So I'm talking about the ancient Near East. Yeah. I'm talking about Israel's context. Right. Her neighbors had better laws for women and inheritance than she did. One thing confuses me a little bit. You have the five members. They inherit land, but they get married and take the name of the husband. So this was all done on the basis of keeping the name of the father of those five women alive. But even though they inherit the land, they're not really keeping the name 
But they, you're, you're thinking about family names. There was no such thing. They don't have family names. Really. She, she, they would have been Milka Batslovchad. She would have stayed Milka Batslovchad. Right? She, they, they didn't have family names. You had individual names. You belonged to a clan. But you traced it of Ben so-and-so, Ben so-and-so, Ben so-and-so, Ben so-and-so. Yeah, they didn't take the husband's name. Correct. Because there was no name. You, you had your own name. And you belonged to a clan and a tribe, and, but you didn't have a shem mishpacha, as we say in Hebrew. They didn't have a family name. You, you mentioned that the question here is, how do we interpret these laws? We take this, and it's up to us to develop them and modernize them. Is that the orthodox point of view as well with this kind of passage? Yes. That we're obligated to modernize? and Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Huh? I think the whole idea of studying Torah is to make it relevant. To well, yeah, to make it relevant, relevant, but I wonder if they would learn talk about modernizing the approach to the law. Like, How do you kosher a microwave? Well, you can use fire, or you can't use it in the microwave, no. of course. How do you kosher? You really can't. Sure you can. You have to. How do you do it? <laughs> you have to go find it in the law that talks about koshering, and then you have to modernize it and apply it to a microwave oven. Well, I can see that would be easier than the place of women. It's <laughs> <laughs> all a matter of what you, you know, what's your priority, your microwave or your woman. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, and look, they are now... In the Orthodox world, there are women who are getting the title Moratenu, our teacher, which is one step away from Rav. They, they, of course they have to modernize. Of course Torah has to be applicable to our day and to our time. But it's kind of Laura jokingly said it, but the truth is, what, what do you want to apply it to? They don't want to change the role of women. Right. So why would they do that? We do, so we will, and we'll call it Torah. Like, that's what everybody does. It's somewhat of a rationalization according to where you stand. It, sure. I mean, they, it's about what they're, what they're wanting to modernize Torah to do. Right. They care very much about, is it kosher, is it not kosher? They, and they want the status of women to be that of mother and wife and homemaker. And that's, that's, the, that's their priorities, right? So they don't... Your question assumes... I think that there's only one position from which to modernize the law. Modernize means position of women, not to them. That's right. Not to them. Do do you see what I'm saying? That's our perspective. Is, well, the Orthodox would say they're modernizing and Torah should be made modern for our day? Well, of course, because they live a Torah life. But. But, and... They don't, have a, they don't have a need to change the role of women. So... Isn't this modernizing what the whole idea of the Talmud and the evolution of commentary over Of course, many, many because the, the law has to evolve and change to meet the... the they, God forbid. The law doesn't change. Let's be clear. The law does not change. We interpret the law and how best to apply the law to any given situation today. So the law doesn't change. This is the time the law changed. That's why it's a big deal, right? They said, time out, right? 
there's nothing, we can't apply the law as given to our situation. That is impossible. That can't be what God intended. And so they bring forward the challenge so that the complete revelation of the law could be given. Laura, you've been trying to say something. I, um, couple of questions. I sort of combined. They're bringing their case to Moses. Mm-hmm. To bring to Correct. Yes. Yes. Because what I was saying, you know, rather than saying they trusted so much, another interpretation would be they were incredibly brave because they didn't know what was going to for these people. They've seen him split the sea. What was God who split the sea? Who's standing there with a staff? <laughs> Moses. You know, when the hail comes and then it leaves, like it's, it's Moses. And, you know, so... He, but Moses couldn't grant their request. Ah, ah. So the rabbis say, how come Moses had to go to God? He didn't know what to do. Why? Why didn't he know? It was a change. He wasn't. He's been given revelation. He's got access. Like, how come Moshe didn't know? Because Moshe knew the law and knew that he couldn't change it without God's permission. So, for the rabbis, they they go further, and they say, "No, Moshe's talking about leveret marriage and an inheritance. And when is leveret marriage? When?" The man dies with no sons, so let our mother go be with her brother-in-law and have sons. But you can't marry your brother-in-law, blah, 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 blah. So they stumped Moses using the law, says the Midrash. They're like, so let our mother marry her brother's brother, and she'll have sons, and then our father won't have inherited, won't have died without sons. But that's illegal, according to somewhere um, and so Moshe's like so they say so, wait so here's how they stump him they say so we we do count as children in leveret marriage right you you won't let our mother marry the brother-in-law because the guy died with us with five girls so we count in terms of him being dead and being his descendants in leveret marriage but now you're telling us we don't count in terms of inheritance as, as uh, what did I just say? Descendants. So does he have descendants or doesn't he have descendants? We can't both be his descendants and therefore he legally blah, blah, blah. And then in this case, we're not his descendants until legally blah, 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 blah. You, you can't have that both ways. And Moshe goes, oh. they stump like they. So according to the Midrash, they go further than Moshe didn't know. They stump Moshe with the law and come up with a legal way to say, you, you now have a, a conflicting reality. You, you can't do that. It's internally contradictory. Either we're descendants or we're not. You can't have it both ways, sorry. And because they knew that and they were smart, they were darshaniyot, they, using the law, stumped the greatest teacher of the law ever. There is not a higher compliment the rabbis can pay. Right? Like, we're going, like, why does that have to be? 
Forget whether it has to be there or not. They put it there. They put this story about them taking lever at marriage, right? And we either we're descendants or we're not. They, they give these women the highest compliment possible. That they correctly interpreted and found a contradiction in the law. And Moshe was stumped. And he's like, they got a point, <laughs> right? And had to go to the judge of judges. Yes. To the Supreme Court. <laughs> Orthodoxy does have to bend at certain times. I'll give an example. In Alaska, where you can have 20 hours of darkness or 20 hours of light. So when does Shabbat begin? When does it end? Mm-hmm. So they pick a city. In this case, Seattle. <laughs> Otherwise... I mean, they, 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 yeah. So they say when it's dark in Seattle, it's dark. It's it's dark. It's dark. It's dark. All right. Yes. Is there something else before we move on? Is there more to this in the sense that in the past, I think you taught us that women are chattels? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she taught us that. Because <laughs> 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 if they own land, all of a sudden, they're not But they're passing it on to the male heirs. They're just holding it until they have sons. Correct. Nobody owns the land. God owns the land. They, they are holding it for their sons. No. No. Yes. You know what this story sort of reminded me of? Maybe there is no connection, but there is another example uh, way back. Uh, I think Abraham. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Sounds more. Right. You know Abraham and and uh, the so-called cult prostitute was it not Abraham? And and she wins that case. Tamar and Judah. Tamar and Judah. Sorry, excuse me. No worries. Um, is, is that, in your mind, sort of a, a mini version of this same kind of story? Because mm-hmm. she sort yes. of had no way out except right. this. And it was a very logical argument. And she trusted that the logic would prevail, and it did. Right. Yes. So she, in that case, she had to trust who? Judah, because she did it in secret and in private. So she had to trust his better inclination, right? It isn't this powerful, is it this story, but it's... Yeah, but it's definitely another example, right, of women taking in the ways they can the law to... To make well, it more they, just they for them. Possible and very unusual and contradictory situation, and they saw that. Yes. And in her case, also, she sort of figured out, well, this is sort of the only way I can get justice, and I just have to trust that I'm going to get justice. Yes. Yes. This reminds me of the Abraham arguing with God over Sodom and Gomorrah, again trusting that God will be just. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me. Moses is bringing two questions to God. One is, one is their right to question. And, and, and we, assume, we assume, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But in a sense, he's, gotta, he's saying, God, can, do these people even count? And God says yes. 
And then does their argument count? It doesn't. What it tells us is. It just says he took it to. It, he took their case. He took the case to God. But he or God could have said, "I'm sorry, they have no standing." Of course. Which they didn't. So, and what does Moshe do in verse 5? What does he actually do? It says he brought uh-huh. the case. What does he. Vayikrav Moshe et mishpatan lifnei Adonai. Moshe brought it close. The same exact word used of these women. Vatikrovna. That's the first word we looked at this morning. Vatikrovna. They came close. So Moshe takes their case, mm-hmm. right, and brings it close. Vayakrev Moshe et Mishpatan. So this is, right, they've brought it, they've come close, they've brought their case, and Moshe now does the exact same thing with God. I love the fact that they believe there is a source of justice. That, that belief is challenged in the society in which we live. What? What? Um, yeah, and the Midrash you know, goes on and on and on about it. The virtue of the daughters of Solovchad lay in their not making do with the first formulation of the law. Out of their deep faith that the Holy, the Holy One, blessed be He, transcends the emotional tendencies of men who favor men over <laughs> women, they came forward and demanded their share in the divine destiny. Therefore, they merited having this passage attributed to them. The Torah to record for all time not only the laws on inheritance themselves, but also the context in which these were given. The story of the petition that the daughters of Tzolofchad addressed to Moses and their ultimate success in their endeavor. To paraphrase Nachmanides, the good deeds of the mothers can serve as an omen for the daughters. Um, let's, look, let's look at, okay, so Bert just said, okay, so it comes before God. Right? Lifne also, and they lifne. Exactly. Vatikrovna, lifne Moshe, lifne Eliezer, lifne everybody. And so Moshe is going to bring it close. Lifne Adonai. Okay. Perfectly symmetrical. Vayomer Adonai Moshe Lemur. What does God answer? What does God answer? What's God's answer? Look at the Hebrew. What's God's answer? Hebrew verse 7. You don't have to know a lot of Hebrew. This is not a trick. What does it say? Okay, who, somebody look at the Hebrew of verse 7. And tell me what it says. Just the first three words. Yes. Yes. Cain benot salofchad. What does that mean? No daughters. Yeah. Yes, the daughters. Yeah. So the God, this is God's answer. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, you go. <laughs> That's God's answer. So I don't care what your JPS says. <laughs> That is not what God says. <laughs> what God says in the Torah is yes. Cain. Yes. yes. Kama Benotzolofchan. You could read. Right? We have no punctuation in the Torah. So if we punctuate it, which Aviva Zorenberg does, 
it looks like this. And what is, why? Yes. Like, wait, what? Even in Hebrew, that is not a great way to say. I mean, he doesn't say, I've proved the believe. Uh, no, it's an affirmation. It, right? It's not. Right on. Right on. So, so the beginning part is not an answer to the case. Right? It's to the implied question that Bert thinks Moshe may be asking. Right? So we don't see Moses ask it, but we see God answer it. Because all that needs to happen is right? Give, give them the inheritance. That's all God has to say for, for judging the case. Because it says Moshe brings the case before God. God doesn't answer that question first. What does God say literally? Ken benot solovcha dovrot. What is dovrot? I know when we need her. Because God forbid I just tell you. I don't know, it's just not my style. All right, so, um, Deber, speak words. They, they have spoken, yet, yes, they have spoken. Or correctly, they have spoken is how it's usually translated. Correctly have the daughters of Solovchad spoken, they're right. But, but it's more than they're right. For, what is it, Jonna? You're nodding. Well, like, I don't know. It's like he's applauding that they come forward, that they're actually present and saying, I have, I have a voice. That he approves of them. <laughs> Challenging. That, <laughs> finally, uh-huh. yeah, finally, finally, <laughs> someone steps forward trusting my judgment Trusting that, right, that I will always do justice and be compassionate. And they took it upon themselves out of love of justice to risk what it takes to come forward, to come close, to take a stand, to commit, to to risk. At that time. This was pretty gutsy thing to do. It's a pretty gutsy thing to do. Because everything is so patriarchal that just to have women come and say, you know, get me justice. <clears throat> and still a gutsy thing to do. Yeah, right? Um, so for Aviva Zornberg, uh, right, she quotes the Sifre who reads Ken. Yes. To suggest that God shows Moses his original version <laughs> to demonstrate the rightness of the women's narrative. That God already showed Moses the real law. <laughs> right? And Moses forgot, it was Moses who forgot? And no, it's oh. that God, like Laura said, God wrote, God knows they're gonna come forward. So God shows Moses the real law, the full law. Mm-hmm but only has Moses reveal part of it to create the opening for them to come forward. And so then when they do, God says to Moshe, Ken. See? See? This is, this is why I had you give only part of the law because Ken, they needed to speak. 
and that wouldn't have happened if I'd have just given the whole law for you to just put out there as law, then there wouldn't be all this interesting stuff. So he was empowered. Yes. Yes, and that this the Sifre says that was the whole point, <laughs> right? Do we know how old they were? We do not. Were they married? Did they have children? They did not because they don't because they're told who they can marry. So they have not yet married. So, so, so these could be pretty young women. Yes. They could have been teenagers. So, so, so you're saying this is another step into the sea story. Yeah, right? Yes. Right, tell them to move forward. Well, how are they supposed to move forward with water there? Right? And God's like, because they have to move forward or else the waters can't part. And it's another one of these that if there's going to be justice, it's going to require that the oppressed stand up. That's a lesson. So if God showed, showed Moses the whole law, why couldn't he answer the question that they brought forward? Why did he turn to God? Because he, he goes to God to say, okay, here, here we are, and God's like, Ken. <laughs> like it's a, yeah, right. it's a private thing between Moses and God that the let, the children, let the children come forward and let them demand you know, money for the afikoman. And I'll pretend that I don't have it ready. Right? I'm not giving you money. It's my afikoman. All right? Anyway, that's how it was in my house. We had to steal the afikoman from my grandfather. And then we, we ransomed it back. Right? And he would make up this whole fuss. How dare you take my afikoman and then charge me money? And my grandmother's like, don't settle for 50 cents. What, are you kidding? You need a dollar from him. So, anyway. Now, ostensibly, this is not the first time this situation happened. That that there were women that, that a man died with no sons. It's the first time we're getting the law. No, I, I understand, but for but, Israel, right? But before this, that could have happened many times, and the sons of those women ultimately could have complained about it because they would not have inherited. Right? But th- there, there's there's no inheritance. Right. I say till now. This is oh, none at all. No. Well, they were slaves in Egypt. So <laughs> what did they have? have? Like, I'll give you my sari. <laughs> like, you, know, you can split my sandals. <laughs> so this is the first time it, uh, inheritance is coming up. Well, the big deal and, and it's not even a reality yet. Because the, the big deal is inheritance of the land. Yes. Which they don't have yet. Correct. No, but they're going to have. Right. I mean, this, right. That, that's why this is a big, big deal. Land was everything. Well, that's, that's a, in an agrarian culture. It is everything, right? All right, so I want to look at... Where did you get a few hundred of those buttons printed up? I know, right? I found it in Georgia. I love it. In Georgia? In Georgia. I love it. And, and I, I can't even tell who, who it says. And I, got one, I bought one at the same time for Bert. Um, that says, if not now, when? when? And, and it says Hillel on the bottom. Like, so they even attribute it to Hillel. What does that say? <laughs> we're we're going to see how long it takes everyone in the room to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, my button says, stand your ground. It's, it's sacred. sacred. All right, so I want to go, go to another commentary that talks about them being descended from Yaakov, but I also want to say that um, for Zorenberg, I found it really powerful that she says um, the most striking moment in this legal drama is the moment when God approves their plea. Ken Benot Tzolofcha Dovrot. 
They speak ken. They speak, yes, they speak right. God speaks first about their act of speech. Right? We, we've been focusing on the fact that they came forward. But what does God actually say? God comments, God speaks about their speech. This unprecedented divine compliment resonates powerfully toward the end of a book in which so many unhappy acts of speech have been recorded. A cacophony of language rises up from the text of this book. After all, the complaints of the people, the verbal fury and distrust, after Moses's complex failure to speak to the rock, after the Balaam narrative with its murky projections of the problem of language as benediction and malediction, after 40 years of misspeaking, five sisters achieve an act of debor that gains a gratified response from God, all the more intense for the misfires of the past. Ken, God says, yes, at last. An incredibly, I think I'm going to have chill moments, but I mean, an incredibly powerful insight as she always brings um, is that it's not just this act of speech. The whole book has been filled with the tragedy of speaking or not speaking or which speaking, the donkey speaking, Balaam's supposed to speak this and he speaks that and speak to the rock and he hits it. Now he's going to die before getting to the... I mean, right? The people are like, if only we had gone back to Egypt where there's onions and leeks. And like, the, the speaking in this book has been tragic on some levels right and and have had very serious consequences and is all twisted and tangled and uh, which is what it's about because we're all twisted and tangled and I mean it's complicated um but she points to like this is a moment of redemption (laughs) you know like this is a moment where speech is redeemed and it's five women objecting to what they feel is oppressive that brings that debor, that speech that gets a response, a comment from God. Not their case. Their speech is what God says. Ken, yes, finally. Stand up to power. Don't hesitate. Make your case. Don't just sit back and wait for good things to happen. Because, you know, 45 minutes ago, I was convinced when you started out saying, God made a mistake, but he's a big guy. He corrected his mistake. Okay, God made a mistake. 45 minutes later, he did it intentionally. (laughs) Are you shocked that we came all the way around? That we went 180? I've gone completely around the morning. Then I have done my job. Right? Then my work here is done. Is there any precedent for... um, God to for uh, a group, whether it be male or female, to uh, to question uh, God's law and God making a decision. Or is this the first time that um, uh, God actually had acted as a Supreme Court? Um, we would you repeat the question? So the question is: Is this? Is there? Are there other examples of people in the Bible challenging God's law? 
and and like God being okay with that, right? Like that, you know, that God is the supreme court that they bring it to. Um, we've we've had the prophet arguing with God directly about God's decisions, but we're only getting law, right? In in some of this later stuff, we don't we don't have a huge right, but they're getting law now. Um, and for, it's for when they're going to be in the land. So, so that's just a, it's less text. So I'm trying to think if there's another place the law is challenged. So this is a this is a pretty seminal event. To, yeah. To have all this text in the law. Just in this way, you know, you go from the Ninth Circuit Court, uh, uh, you know, up to the Supreme Court uh, to, uh, to you know to make this decision and the decision. Uh, revolves around women's rights of all things. So don't do that now. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, lots of luck. Um, Particularly after Monday. Yeah. <laughs> right. <clears throat> right. Um, so it's. I mean, I think it's implied that that Moshe always takes the really hard stuff to God. You know, that when Yitro criticizes Moses for hearing all the cases, you know, he, and asks him, how does the system work? Moses is like, well, you know, it's handled in lower courts for the, then it was really difficult. It comes to me. And then, you know, if I don't know, right. Um, so, but, but, but we haven't had a challenge. All right. So the tribal ancestor is who? Joseph. Joseph. Joseph was the archetype of the unjustly prosecuted victim, having been locked up on false charges in the Egyptian prisons for 12 long years. In our contemporary conceptions of righteousness, we would imagine that long-suffering Joseph, who bore his travails with silence and faith, would be an image worthy of emulation. However, the Tiferet Shlomo reads this differently. He states that the word ken, which is normally read as correctly, should be, with the rest of the phrase, translated more as yippee. (laughs) The people of Joseph are finally speaking. God wanted Joseph to cry out, to protest the injustice which had been perpetrated upon him. Perhaps had he done so, cried out and fought the unfairness of his fate, the system might have been changed and the whole story would have turned out better. The evils of the system need to be fought to evoke resistance and transformation rather than grinning and bearing it. Thus, when finally his descendants learned to protest injustice rather than mutely, expressionlessly accepting it, God was, as it were, relieved. Finally, the people had demonstrated that they were ready to begin a new society when they could legitimately recognize and resist injustice, even when it seemed to emanate from the most powerful authority possible. If that is not a call to... to, Right, that's a Tiferet Shlomo. That's an old, old commentary on this event that, right, that... The most powerful of all is where it came from, and they had the courage to speak against what they considered injustice. And it is absolutely right the call that continues, you know, to stand for and against those who are being oppressed. I will close with the words of Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson, um, 
who goes to Rashi's interpretation from 11th century Provence. Uh, Rashi says that this story teaches us that their eyes saw what the eyes of Moses did not see. So in giving the law, Moses doesn't see, because he's a man in a patriarchal society, Rashi says Moshe didn't see what these women saw, that, that there was an injustice happening here, that they, you know, and so Rabbi Artson says, people, scenery, and animals enter our worldview in terms of what function they can perform rather than as human beings with feelings and problems and dreams, as living creatures or as a magnificent national treasure. Most of the time we look but don't really see. The daughters of Tzolofchad teach us an essential lesson for being fully human. They teach us the imperative of truly seeing, not only with our eyes, but with our minds and our hearts as well. They teach us not to turn away from the homeless, the elderly, the disabled, or members of other minorities. Rather than look, looking at people as objects, the Torah shows us by way of example that the constant struggle to be fully human is really the struggle to see all people as people. This Shabbat and in the future, let us take up the gift of the daughters of Sulafhad. Let us teach ourselves to see. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.